We'd like to invite children to head back to Children's Church, ages 3 to kindergarten. Feel free to head back and join your teacher in the back. And as you all head out and join Miss Susan, I invite the rest of us to turn to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to be in the last couple of verses of Genesis chapter 8 and then the first 17 of chapter 9. And turn to Genesis chapter 8. In fact, I invite you to stand with me if you are willing and able. I'm reading from the NIV. And we'll start in Genesis 8.20. The flood has abated and Noah has, and his family have left the ark. Now they start anew. 820 to 9:17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, "Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done." As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. From each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you, Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Amen. Maybe seated. Our Father and God, we pray that you would just give us understanding this morning. As we always pray, we would first have understanding of what your word says, Lord, and then the right heart and mind to apply it to our own lives. That We don't want to just have data, Lord, but we want life transformation. We know that happens through your word, empowered by your spirit. So we pray your spirit would animate us this morning, cause us to be alive to what you have to say to us. 
We pray that for here. We pray that for those in Children's Church. We pray that for all those who may be watching and hearing in any place. May your word do its work. Amen. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you no doubt know that there are certain words and phrases that we use that are kind of distinct to us, that they may be common English words, but they are our own little language, and we call this Christianese. You may be able to think of some Christianese words, words that we use often in church, but you don't hear out in the world very often. One of those words might be exult. You'll hear it often in church, we exalt thee, but you don't hear people talking about exalting much out in the world. That's kind of a Christianese word. I think glory is one of those words that has a distinctly Christian flavor to it. We talk about glory all the time, and I don't hear it too often used outside in the world. Hedge of protection is definitely one of those Christianese phrases. I'm still not exactly sure what it is or what it means, but we use it and we pray it. Uh, Quiet time. The world calls that meditation. Uh, We call it quiet time or devotion. That's That's a Christianese phrase. Traveling mercies. Uh, that's, a, I think, a Christianese phrase. Maybe you can think of some others. Laying on of hands. Uh, I think in the world that's fighting. But for us, that means something different. Another churchy word that's all over the Bible that you don't hear too much out in the world, but it, we see it all throughout Scripture, is covenant. Covenant. It's a formal word. It's a very religious-y sounding word, a spiritual word, covenant. We talk about the marriage covenant. Well, what is a covenant? A covenant, as you may know, is just a formal agreement. Uh, uh, crassly, you could call it a contract. But it's agreement between two people or two parties that stipulates how are they, how they are going to act towards one another. It often has a religious or spiritual tone to it. And there are a number of covenants in Scripture that define God's relationship with his people, that state how God is going to act toward his people, and often how God wants his people to act in return. Those are covenants, agreements. This morning here, we see the covenant that God makes with Noah. It is the first explicitly stated, uh, clearly stated covenant in Scripture. Some have called it the Noahic covenant, the covenant God makes with Noah. And what I want to explore this morning is what's the point of this covenant? What does it do? And what's the emphasis of this covenant, this agreement, this contract that God makes with Noah and actually with all people? What does this covenant teach us? And I'll summarize it this way. Here's what the covenant's all about. The human life will thrive because God promises and demands it. Human life will thrive because God promises and demands it. He does both in it. He, he makes demands of people on how human life is going to be preserved, and he promises that human life will be preserved because God values human life. And that's really what this is all about as we go through this scripture. That's the, the heart behind the covenant is that God values human life. So he's going to ensure it will keep going. Uh, Presbyterian scholar O. Palmer Robertson has called this the covenant of preservation. It's how God is going to preserve people. As I said, it's his heart, God's heart, that he values people and loves human life. And that is behind all of it. And so let's talk about that first for a few moments here. In verses 20 through 22, I think we see the heart of the covenant that God makes. This is God's heart. We see Noah's heart for worship and God's heart for humanity. The heart of the covenant, verses 20 and 22 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and, taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. 
The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Noah emerges from the ark and he starts his day off well, right? What better way to start off than building an altar, worshiping the Lord? That's much better than checking Twitter and Facebook, which is how sometimes we start the day. Noah starts the new day, new age, by, with worship and sacrifice. And think about what he's sacrificing. You use your basic principle of supply and demand. See, that Noah is not stingy. There are only so many animals, right? There's a defined set that he can use to worship, but he freely offers them up to God. Just, it's not the main point of the sermon, but just here's a word on generosity right here. There's only a limited number of animals, but no one knows the value of God and worship to him. It's still worth sacrificing in order to worship and praise the Lord. In generosity and sacrifice, he makes a pleasing offering to God. Good start to the new age of humanity. But... As we know, this does not mean that humanity is perfect. In fact, God says every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. The flood may have in some way cleansed the world, but humanity still has a sin problem. There's still evil in the hearts of humanity. The flood did not take care of that. And this evil, this sinfulness, is not something that happens because we grow up and at some point somebody wrongs us so we turn bad. Like our sinfulness is not something where we start neutral and then our environment is bad so we turn bad. All right? Our origin story is not like a comic book villain where they started off good and then something happened and then they turned into an evil villain. No, that's not how we are. The sin in us, the evil in us, is not something that was produced because of some outside force that caused it. It's something that is innate in humanity ever since the fall. It's a condition from birth, from childhood. We are starting out evil. Uh, To quote Lady Gaga, we are born this way. I think she's using that in quite the opposite tone, but... We are... Since Adam and now since Noah, born into this disposition of sinfulness, which is why Jesus himself can say in Matthew 7:11, "If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him?" So this is the condition of humanity, and yet God in his love and grace, says, never again. Never again. Through every age, summer, winter, night and day, never again will I flood the earth as I have. It was a promise to preserve his people. Why? Not because humanity got better. He says they're right at the start. 
the problem of evil still remains in the human heart. But because God loves people, he gives grace and says, that'll never happen again. God is preserving his creation, his people, until a day where he can provide real and true salvation. This is preservation until that point. God keeps his creation alive until he can truly save them and deal with that problem of evil in the human condition. But before we go anywhere, I just want you to see God's heart for his people. Why does he promise that he'll never flood the world again? Not because no one in his family got better. It's because God gives grace and he loves human life. He loves people. I want that to be kind of a bedrock, something you hold on to, something that is foundational as we go through this covenant, that this is the foundational heart of God. He loves his people, values his people, and wants to preserve them. And that is the heart behind what he says next. It is with that disposition that we, God speaks. And whatever laws God gives throughout the rest of Scripture, whatever, whatever your actions you see of God, however... However God deals with you in your own life, I want you to know that this is his heart for people. This is his heart for you. He loves and values human life and desires to preserve it and save it. That is God's heart towards humanity and his creation. And we all, all of us, live under that blanket of grace and the love of God for his people. That He desires life. Well, how is he going to preserve life? And this is what we see Next, in verses 1 through 7, I think we see the demands of the covenant. What does God demand of humanity? Now that Noah and his family have exited the ark, and then they're going to start a, a, new, a new family, so to speak, what are the demands that God makes upon his people? These demands are all about preserving life on the earth. Let's look through the demands of the covenant, starting in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, and on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, from each being human being, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Here God makes demands of humanity for life on earth. And what I want you to see first and foremost is these demands are universal. They are not just for Israel, not just for Christians, because Israel and Christianity ain't around yet. These demands are for all people. Do you know how I know? Because God is here speaking to all people. There's eight of them. And God is speaking to all of them. Noah and his sons, all their wives, here's the demands for you. So these are universal in their scope. 
applying to all people on the earth. The first demand is a familiar one. It's the demand to produce life. Verses 1 and 7, be fruitful and multiply. We've seen that before, haven't we? That sounds familiar. Same demand, command that God gave to Adam, now he gives to Noah. Noah, you are the new Adam. You are the new father of this human race. Fill the world with life. That's the demand. The demand to produce life. How how is humanity, how is life going to be preserved? It's going to multiply. That's the game plan. I think every week almost I mention that there are other ancient flood accounts. There's a Mesopotamian flood story. And according to the Mesopotamian flood story, the reason for the flood in the first place was that people became numerous. It's to quote a document from ancient Mesopotamian flood story. People became numerous. That's why the flood came. Because there were too many people on the earth. They got noisy and loud, and the gods were upset with that. So they sent a flood to quiet them down. Then after the flood, according to one document, the epic of Atrahasis, A-T-R-A-H-A-S-I-S, if you want to Google it, the epic of Atrahasis, after the flood, the, the gods determine that these will be uh, the ways they keep humanity down so this never happens again. To keep humanity quiet, the gods conspire, and they agree to inflict women with sterility. They will inflict a high infant mortality, the death of children, and the gods say they're going to make priestesses who are celibate. They'll punish the earth with religious practices that reduce the number of children. So according to that Mesopotamian flood account, this is what the gods do. They come up with ways to reduce life. How different does that sound than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God doesn't want reduced, limited life. He says, multiply, fill it up. Fill the earth with image bearers, with people who represent me, who reflect me. Fill the earth with life. If you train your ear to hear it, you will hear the echo of those Mesopotamian gods all around us. We've got to keep life down. Overpopulation scares. Better not produce so many people. You have a really important career, really important ambitions. You don't want kids to get in the way of that. Your echoes of the Mesopotamian gods. We should have freedom, choice. to kill our children. Those Mesopotamian gods still around. If you train your ear to hear it, you will hear all around us that voice against life. Satan and his associates spreading the campaign of anti-life. We should euthanize the infirm and the elderly. And they're a burden on our system. You're going to hear that more and more. 
there's a fundamental disposition that God has towards life. He loves humanity and wants to see humanity thrive and multiply. That doesn't mean that every family has to have seven kids in a minivan. It does mean that we, as the people of God, should have a fundamental valuing of life and multiplication. God demands that we produce life. Second, he demands that we respect life. There's a respect for life, particularly human life. Here God calls for humans to live really at the top of the food chain. (laughs) Humans, you have a special place. As image bearers, you have a special place above the animals. Not that animals aren't valued or that we should not treat them well. In fact, part of, I think, godly living is a respect for all of creation and a a godly disposition towards the animal world. That's what he has. That's why he saved the animals, right? But also the animals are to be used for us and by us. And particularly, God does something wonderful and glorious that we praise him for. He gives us animals to eat. Why would God make animals out of meat if he didn't intend for us to eat them, right? So it seems, and kind of the implication is that in the garden, it seems like Adam and Eve ate vegetables, but now for the first time explicitly, God gives animals over for humans to eat. It's not to say we should treat them barbarically, but rather we should cultivate and grow and fill the world with animals and care for them and then also eat them. You can say yes and amen with me. Come on, I'm not the only carnivore in the room I trust. But as we eat, there's a limit. It says we're called to respect the life inherent in each animal by not eating blood. That's a command that is endured through Israel, and even to today, humans are forbidden here from consuming the blood of their animals. So does this mean we can't have our steaks rare? This is the important question of the day. Don't worry. The red in your rare steaks is not blood, technically. That's myoglobin, protein that delivers oxygen to an animal's muscles, and the protein turns red when meat is cut or exposed to air. So... You're good. If you like, and I'll go to people said amen. If you like, if you like steaks cooked properly with a bit of red in them, what that is about, it, it, this is a prohibition uh, from eating animals that have not been drained of their blood. So steaks, and you're, you know, that blood is drained. But why is consuming blood a big deal? Why, why is this even a command in the first place? Why is this the demand of God? There's something theologically going on here that the life is in the blood. What God is saying is you are not to consume life. You are to multiply life, but you don't consume the life blood of an animal. The blood stands for the life, the soul of a thing, so it is in a sense sacred. And blood will be used not for consumption, but for making atonement. Blood is not to fuel our greater consumption, but to highlight the fact that we need life and saving from sin. Listen to what God says to Israel in Leviticus 17.11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Life is in the blood and is to be used for atoning for sins and sacrifice, not for consumption and eating. That continues to this day. We'll do it later today. Celebrate the fact that life is in the blood and makes atonement for sins. So it's not to be eaten. 
Humans are to produce and respect life. And lastly, humans are to protect life. And this is to be done with justice. In the flood, God took justice into his own hands. And now after the flood, God is going to give justice to humans for them to execute. You might call it a poetic justice because God says it poetically here in verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God has God, in the image of God has God made mankind. This is a demand from God for all human civilization for capital punishment. Life got violent and out of control before the flood. Genesis 6.11 says that the earth was full of violence, which is why God flooded it. Humanity was going to wipe itself out with violence. So on the other side of the ark, God says, I'm going to give you laws of justice so that that doesn't happen. This is a means of preserving life, giving justice into the hands of people. So you might ask, Aaron, are you teaching capital punishment as a Christian, as a Mennonite? And I would say, I'm not teaching it. The Bible's saying it. That God has mandated it. And I have no idea where we all individually stand on capital punishment, so I don't know who I'm talking to here. So I want to tread lightly and just say, there's a lot of messy questions around this. I'm going to explore a few, not all of them. And you may end up disagreeing with what I say here in the end, and that's fine. There's a lot of room for discussion here. But as we have the discussion, the call I will make to you is to make your case biblically. However you think about any topic, is your thinking grounded in Scripture and his values and not your own inclinations and whims? So that's my appeal to you as we have this conversation, knowing we may not all land in the same place after, and we might evolve over time in our thinking. Totally fine. But let's dig into this and think about this command for capital punishment. It's there. First, notice that three times God says, I will demand an accounting. So it's not necessarily saying that God accepts capital punishment or death for murderers, is what we're talking about here. It's not that God accepts that as a possible outcome. It's that God actually demands accounting. Three times he says, I demand accounting. If a life, an innocent life is taken, God demands an accounting for it. In Deuteronomy 19.13, in the case of someone who commits premeditated murder, Deuteronomy 19.13 says, Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. So God says to Israel, in the case of premeditated murder, execute that person, show no pity, or else you will suffer as a community. You say, well, why does God mandate this form of justice? Why, why is it there? It's because humans are made in the image of God. It's because we are valuable. Humans have an inherent worth and value that should not be violated without justice. And those who kill that image without consequence are an affront to God. John Calvin said, no one can be injurious to his brother without wounding God himself. Because we are image bearers. We bear the image of God. So God demands justice for attack on an image bearer. Because life is valuable, we bear the image of God. And a society that does not enact justice shows that it does not value life or God. That kind of society will not thrive. And again, this brings up a ton of questions. I can't answer all of them. Let's just address a couple. So you might ask, does this 
law of capital punishment or this demand for justice, does that still apply today or is it only a thing in Noah's time? Well, it was enacted in Israel and there were laws around it. And you would say, well, we're not Israel. And they'd say, right, we're a church. But Paul says in Romans 13 that the state is given this prerogative. So Romans 13.4, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So Romans 13 tells us God gives the state, governments, the authority and the right, the prerogative to bear the sword, to enact justice, to execute judgment. So that principle that was given to all of humanity in the beginning seems to endure to today. Does that mean we as individual Christians can enact such justice? No. Just a few verses prior, Romans 12, Paul says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Personally, individually, especially as Christians, we are called not to seek out vengeance, to repay evil done to us personally. Executing justice in the sense of capital punishment like we're talking about here is a prerogative of the state and not an individual. Or as one scholar said, exacting retribution is not a personal matter, but a societal obligation. It's not something we're to carry out on our own. Personal vengeance is outlawed by God. That brings up a very real concern. You say, okay, it's the prerogative of the state. I don't trust the state very much. And I would say, I'm right there with you. And so I might argue, we have a flawed judicial system. And I would say, yes and Amen. We are an imperfect society, and we can't carry this out perfectly. And I'd say, that's right. The thing to consider is, when was a perfect society? God said it was imperfect right from the start, and yet he still gave the law and gave the demand for justice, knowing it would be applied imperfectly. So we have history of capital punishment, and we have Anabaptist history of capital punishment, people being executed wrongly. We have lots of history in our own U.S. history of this being applied wrongly. People have been wrongly sentenced to death. That is a serious concern, something we have to deal with in a matter to be considered. Justice enacted wrongly based on skin color, social status. How do we deal with that? Maybe we as Christians ought to be people, some of us who put our hand toward the work of criminal justice reform. That would be a distinctly Christian thing to do. Maybe we'd be helped if the state followed the teaching of God in this matter. So consider, go back to the laws of Israel. How was this to be carried out in God's nation? I'm not saying we should become Israel. We are not the, the state is not the new Israel, but the state can learn from what God told Israel 
Deuteronomy 19.15 says there must be two or three witnesses for someone to be convicted. Two or three people who saw it, who were, were credible witnesses. So people weren't to be convicted on a guess. And so well, what if those witnesses were lying? Well, Deuteronomy 19.16-21 says if a witness falsely testified, the witness would suffer the same penalty that was due to the offender. According to Deuteronomy 17, 2 and 7, the witnesses were also to be involved in carrying out the execution. On top of all that, Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9 gives provision for what was to be done in the case of unsolved murders. If you couldn't determine who was responsible for the killing, nobody would be convicted. The priest would instead make a sacrifice to generally cover the people. So in Israel, there were laws for how to carry this out. It was actually hard to convict somebody. And there were all sorts of ways of mitigating injustice. There's a high bar for convicting someone, measures in place to mitigate risk, because God desires true justice to be carried out. There are other objections. You can say, well, if you execute somebody, you no longer give them the chance to repent, which is a valid thing. That was also true in Noah's time, and yet God gave the law, and I'd also... I'm not confident as I throw this out there, but I just ask you to consider, for sake of argument, what better chance to repent than knowing the exact day and the hour you're going to meet your maker? Not all of us are afforded that opportunity. That's a callous argument, I know, but it's something to consider as we're just having the conversation. Someone might say, well, God, capital punishment doesn't actually deter people from further murders. It's not an, an effective deterrent. And I would say we don't evaluate the laws of God based on how effective we think they're going to be. When God makes a law, a demand, we carry it out whether or not we think it's a good one. We are limited in our knowledge. We don't know what the effect of God's laws will be. And some would say, well, this isn't pro-life. And I would say, yeah, there are ways you can carry out capital judgment that aren't pro-life. But at its heart, at its core, this law of capital punishment is pro-life because it values life. Just as it is pro-life to stand against the killing of the unborn, it is pro-life to stand against the premature killing of the elderly and infirm. It is pro-life to stand for justice upon those who take life. It is precisely because God values life that he gives this demand for humanity. I leave that there for your consideration. We can have great conversations later about it. It's not an easy thing. But I would argue that God gives these because he cares for human life, that we produce it, that we respect it, that we protect it. And we as Christians should be those who value it. God values it, which is why he makes the promise of the covenant, verses 8 through 17. Following his demands of the covenant, he then makes a promise that never again will he flood the earth, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that was with you, 
the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. God establishes his covenant with Noah, not just with him. God is careful to say, with your descendants and with all life. It's a universal covenant. And a unilateral covenant. By that I mean it is God's to make and to enforce and to keep. It is dependent not on human ability to keep it. God has already said, you guys are evil. And despite that, this is what I'm going to do. This is what God will do. He will never again, never again, flood the earth and destroy it in the way he did. And now here's a sign. Here's how you know. He puts a rainbow in the sky. After every rain, you can look up and see God has promised to preserve life. That is his promise to do it, and he will keep that promise. I do wonder, after Noah got out of the ark and that first rain that came, if he kind of had a little bit of a, a fear run down his spine, as that first drop hit his head, oh no. But then he remembered. This is the promise that God has made. He has hung his bow in the sky. And that word for bow, that's a military term. It's a bow. It's a hunting bow and arrow. God has hung it in the sky, and I don't think by accident, pointing away from the earth. Hung it as a sign of peace that he will not make war on the earth in the same way again. As one commentator said, he stretched between heaven and earth, or stretched between heaven and earth, it is a bond of peace between both. There will be peace one day that God is preserving life and making peace. Here's the sign of it. A few weeks ago in late March, we know there was a shooting at Covenant School, Covenant Church in St. Louis. A horrific shooting, as they all are. A couple weeks ago, on April 13th, one person on social media remarked that the night he returned for his first gathering back at Covenant, he looked and there were two rainbows in the sky. A promise. Though there is death now, God is preserving his life because he loves his people and his creation. That's what the rainbow means. It's been co-opted by other causes. This is what the rainbow means. It does not mean freedom and autonomy to sin any way you want. The rainbow means God loves his creation, will preserve life. It's a symbol of God's promise to this world. Human life will thrive because God promises it and demands it. 
And as I said earlier, he's just preserving life until he can save it. The flood will never come again. One day, there will be fire, as Peter talks about. One day, there will be judgment. And this world will be remade and renewed. But before that day, there was another day where God really did save his people and secure life and peace for his people. Ironically, through the unjust death of his son, who endured capital punishment for crimes he did not commit. The only man who was ever truly innocently executed. And we're responsible for it. Our sin on his shoulders. We have caused his death. He died for us so that we may live. Why? Because God loves his people and he promises to preserve life and value his people. And so he's made a way of salvation for us. And we'll have life with him and peace forever. Amen. Amen. You pray with me. Well, Father, this is a hard text, a challenging one. We may come at it from different angles and come to different conclusions in some aspects of it. And Lord, in some ways, that's fine. We're imperfect people. We're not going to have every answer. But I do pray that as we read of your covenant with Noah, we would be united and grounded in the truth that matters, that you love your people, that you want life to continue, and ultimately you have found a way to make peace through judgment. Now, whenever we see the rainbow in the sky, we remember that there is a God who loves his creation, who will ensure that life goes on. Not just now, Lord, but forever, eternally, in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we hold to that. And remember your grace upon us. Amen.